You are now listening to the June 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. From Near My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. Today, I like to introduce a hymn that was written from South Korea. Unlike the modernized country now, South Korea went through a period of darkness. Korea as a whole was invaded by Japan in August 29, 1910, and was under Japan's imperial ruling until August 15, 1945. Koreans were suppressed under Japan's ruling and lived difficult lives. Though the 35 years of Japan's colonization ended, Korea suffered a great war that divided the country into the North and South. I'm sure you heard that light shines the brightest when it is the darkest, and the light is needed evermore when it is the darkest. I believe one of the reasons the gospel of Christ spread so fast in Korea is because the country went through so much dark period during its history. The country barely had gotten over the Japanese occupation, but then it was divided because of the difference in the ideology and suffered a tragic war in which brothers killed brothers. Though it seemed like all hopes were lost, The fast spreading of the true hope and the gospel of Jesus was perhaps inevitable, and at the same time, it must have been God's grace. There was an individual who accepted Jesus and wrote a hymn. Today, I'd like to introduce a hymn titled Lift Your Eyes and Look to Heaven by senior deaconess Jin Young Suk. I will refer to her as Miss Suk from here on. Here is the first lyric. Lift your eyes and look to heaven, from a world of chaos below, where the cries of wounded spirits sound around us wherever we go. Having lost the road they wander, milling throngs they've lost the light too. Like the prodigal exhausted, O believer, what will you do? I can almost hear Miss Sook's deep sigh full of sorrow. What was the environment when she wrote this hymn? Let's find out through a reenactment. On June 25, 1950, the North Korean army crossed 38th parallel line that divided the Korea into North and South and started a terrible war. It was the start of the Korean War, one of the most tragic events in modern Korean history in which brothers killed brothers. The unthinkable war caused a great chaos in the country. Corpses were laid everywhere and the air was filled with orphans who lost their parents. People headed south to avoid swarming North Korean soldiers. People were gathering in Busan, the southmost city in South Korea. The government moved to Busan and it used it as a temporary capital. 
the city of Busan, with a population of 400,000 people, became overpopulated with over a million refugees. Refugees started building temporary shelter wherever there was space. Ms. Suk was 26 years old and was teaching at a middle school in Ulsan, but she also had to move to Busan to avoid the North Koreans. The scene of Busan filled with overflowing refugees that came into her sight was a pandemonium. Great chaos. Excuse me, would you have any work? Our family arrived here a few days ago through so many obstacles, but our kids are starving because we have no food. Can you share even a little bit of food? I will do anything you ask me to do. I can understand and have a pity with your situation, but you are not the only one with your situation here. I came here as a refugee as well and just barely living day by day. I also have seven kids at home looking at me for food as well. If you go that way, there is a place called 40 Stairs. If you are lucky, you may find a work or get some relief supplies. Oh, really? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, no. How did you lose your parents in crying here? Uh, no. He was crying since this morning. It looks like he lost her mother. I heard the foreigners are taking orphans and taking care of them. Wouldn't it be better if we bring him there? What? You know my situation. I have no time to consider such matter. Your stomach must be full to consider it. You know Busan is filled with orphans. Are you going to take care of all of them? But I feel so bad. Busan was overflowing with refugees. People were out of drinking water and had to wait for a long time in line for the drinking water. There were several cases of fire each day and a lot of refugees lost everything they had. People roamed around to beg for food and parents did everything and anything they could for their children, even if that meant deserting their pride. Busan was filled with people struggling to survive. To a 26-year-old refuge from Ursan, the scene in young Ms. Suk's eyes was a sight of a despair and caused her a lot of pain. God, look at this land. It is a sight of despair. It is filled with people who do not know where to go, what to do, and why they have to live. Please, have mercy on these people. Please show them the road to where they have head. Lord, please raise up your children who are here so they can spread the word of life. Miss Suk prayed to God with tears so he would raise up those who believe in Jesus so they can spread Jesus Christ the life to people in despair. Then she wrote and completed a poem. Lift up your eyes and look to heaven from a world of chaos below where the cries of wounded spirits sound around us wherever we go. Having lost the road they wander, milling throngs, they've lost the light too. Like the prodigal exhausted, O believer, what will you do? This was a period of great chaos due to war. The people who were living in that period needed Jesus Christ to his life. Miss Sook sent her poem to the composer Jehum Park, who composed a hymn, Oh Come Home, who was at Busan at that time. 
1952, composer Park composed a rhythm that went with Miss Sook's poem and made the hymn "Lift Your Eyes and Look to Heaven" in Busan. Just as the lyrics say, we must lift our eyes and look to the heavens where the Lord is. Spread the love and grace of the Lord in this chaotic world, and lead them to the road of life. These are the things we Christians must do. I wish we can all feel Miss Sook's heart, who cried for the lost souls this week, and seek out the lost souls ourselves, so we can spread the gospel to them. This concludes today's episode of Near My God to Thee.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the reign of grace. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Have you caught yourself ever asking, as you thought about the nature of the world as it is today, what is wrong with this world, this place that I'm in? What's wrong with others? What's wrong with me? Well, I think in Romans 5, 12 to 21, the text we began last week as Mal was leading us through, I, I believe that Paul, what he's trying to do is explain that the reason this world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to actually goes back to a reason that is actually outside of you. It's a reason that goes all the way back to Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. That sin that left all of humanity under the, the power and the reign of sin and death. Now, I'm not going to retread all of Pastor Malachi's excellent work from last week. I'm grateful for what he did. But I do want to remind us that every human is born in Adam. And we are sinners both by nature and by choice. We are born both corrupt, we're broken, we don't work the way that we were created to, and we are also guilty before God. Now, Paul, it's interesting. As he's going through, as you read, you'll notice that it seems as though he just assumes that everyone that he's speaking to in this church in Rome, Jew and Gentile uh, believer alike, are on the same page as far as original sin goes. But, but did I mention that Romans 5 through 8 are some of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. And so you might think to yourself, why in the, one of the most encouraging sections of the Bible would we focus on Adam and, and the brokenness of this world? Well, it's because these chapters, they really do describe for us the new reality that exists for those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The reality that we were born into in Adam is not our reality anymore. We are living in a, a new era, under a new reign, with new expectations. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is trying to do here in Romans 5 to 8. See, here's what I think Paul's doing in verses 18 to 21 that we find ourselves in today. Uh, Paul wants to remind Christians who are beleaguered by the overwhelming brokenness that surrounds them that God's grace in Christ is abundantly more than what we lost in Adam. That's the, the thing that he wants to remind us of. The, the grace that is ours in Christ, it's, it, it brings to us something that is not just going to have us break even, but it's going to bring us abundantly more than what we had in him. And so if, our, if you're writing notes, this is a great place to write down our big idea this morning. This is what we're going to be thinking about. It's this, that we've gained so much more in Christ than what we lost in Adam. We've gained so much more in Christ than what we've lost in Adam. And I hope that as we go through these verses, you see that that's, that's what exactly Paul is, is doing for us. You'll remember that this section, he is comparing Christ with Adam. And he is showing us all throughout how much greater Christ is than Adam. And so that's what we're going to look at here today. Now our first point is this. The cross of Christ triumphs over Adam's fall. The cross of Christ, it triumphs over Adam's fall. We see this 
in verses 18 and 19. Now, as Paul was speaking in verse 12, he kind of trailed off. But he, he picks back up here in verse 18 with the ideas that he began there. And what we find in verse 18 is this. He says this. We're just going to look at the first half of the verse. He says this. Therefore, is one trespass led to condemnation for all men? Okay, we need to just stop right there to understand what he's saying. Here's the first thing that we see here in verse 18. Adam's sin resulted in every human's guilt and death. Adam's sin resulted in every human's guilt and death. Now, you'll remember last week, you heard a quote from Benjamin Harris's 1690 New England Primer, where he expressed the condition that we all experience as humans in Adam. He says, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. See, all trespasses, all of our trespasses, ultimately go back to ground zero of Adam. Now, verse 18 says this. Uh, you'll notice that he says that there was one trespass, and as we've talked about before, trespass is a kind of sin where there's a, a clearly laid out law that has been broken. Now, you don't, you don't need to have that clearly written out law to sin. There are all kinds of ways that we sin, but the law brings in a different degree of sin. We are directly disobeying the law that's been given to us as well as the lawgiver. Well, Genesis 2 tells us that, that Adam committed a, a trespass because when he was placed in the garden, he was originally told in Genesis 2, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's the law. Don't eat of that tree. There are lots of trees to eat from, just don't eat from that one. And Adam ate the fruit of that tree in Genesis 3. And Paul says that that one trespass led to or better yet, it resulted in the condemnation of all of humanity. Now, as you look at verse 18, you'll notice that it speaks of the way this trespass led to condemnation. I think led to actually, if you look at it, comes from a, a little preposition. It just means to in the Greek. So led is being added there. I think a, a better way of saying this, a more wooden way of saying this, as we read in some of the other translations, would be something like this. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness resulted in justification in life for all men. There are actually no verbs here. He's, he's just talking about how the trespass goes with condemnation and righteousness goes, for, goes with justification. Now, this word for condemnation, it means that not only have we been pronounced guilty, but there is a handing down of punishment as a result of that, that guilt that we incurred. And, and I think that punishment, as we look through the way that Paul is describing it, is a kind of present punishment of the wrath of God abiding on us, as also it's looking forward to a future kind of condemnation to death, both uh, uh, for us spiritually. Now, now let me break that down. I, I take this to mean that Adam's sin left every human condemned to death physically and spiritually. So don't miss this. Paul says every human is born guilty of Adam's sin. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, in what way am I guilty before God? 
And I think it's a good question. And I'm going to borrow and edit Francis Turretin here a little bit, which I'm always really cautious about doing stuff like that. But, but you can go back and read him, and, and maybe you'll be more helped by him. But this is the way that I understand our guilt before God. He said that there are three things that make humans guilty in the sight of God. The first is that every human stands guilty for really sinning with Adam because we were physically there. We, we are physically connected to Adam. All of us, every human ultimately comes from Adam. Um, second, the guilt of the corrupt nature has been imputed to us in Adam because he is our covenant head. So there's a real sense in which we are imputed with guilt because of the fact that we are in Adam. And then third, we are also guilty for all of the post-fall sins that we commit. I love the word for, for life here as you read it through Romans. It's, it's a word that actually carries a kind of eschatological meaning. So Paul, I think here, is actually saying that justification leads to eschatological life, a life that we are already enjoying in part now, but that just is a foretaste of the fullness that is yet to come. So let me take a, make a couple of clarifications here. These are, these are hard verses in text. But one, one clarification is this. It may seem like the cross of Christ just kind of returned to us what was lost in the garden. And maybe that's the way that you think about Jesus. That he just kind of brought us back to even. We had lost a lot. And Jesus kind of brought us back to maybe not even fully even, but kind of even. It's just not as bad as it would have been if not for Jesus. But that's not the picture that Paul gives. He says that we actually have much more than what Adam had in the garden. And we'll have much more than what Adam even could have dreamed of. You know, today, if you're in Christ, you enjoy not merely your own righteousness that may fail you. You have been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that does not fail. That is a beautiful gift that is more than what Adam had. Because you're united to Christ by faith, you are counted righteous before God. And you're not standing merely on your own two feet. You are standing in the grace of God before God. You're already enjoying the life of the future age as you await its fulfillment. And second clarification, right here, quickly. Paul's clearly not advocating for any kind of universalism. When he says the, the cross resulted in justification in life for all men, he's not saying that everyone equally partakes in the cross of Christ and the benefits that have been given to the people of God. Now, he's already shown us in chapter 3 that justification is by faith alone. And so he's saying that anyone who is saved, anyone who has put their faith in Christ, Jesus is the only way to receive the benefits of the cross. And Paul's already shown that one is only justified by virtue of their faith union with Christ. But notice also in verse 19 that he gives us another image that in some ways is just a repeat of what he said in verse 18. He says, sinners in Adam, you're either a sinner in Adam or righteous in Christ. 
Now, verse 19 is essentially saying the same thing as verse 18. Look what he says. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, Paul might highlight here the difference in status. I I think that's at least what he's doing. So those in Adam are designated as sinners by virtue of their relationship to him, just as those in Christ are declared righteous by virtue of their relationship to Christ. This likely reflects how Adam is a, a type of covenant head in the same way that Jesus is a covenant head for those in Christ. So as goes the king, so goes the people. But take note of a a couple of important observations here. First, every human became a sinner in Christ. Every human became a sinner in Christ. Now, an alien righteousness that comes from Christ is going to work inside of us who have put our faith in Jesus. Now, this is why Augustine went on to say, not only that in Adam... Adam was able to sin and able not to sin before the fall. But after the fall, he he went on to say man was able to sin and able not to sin and not able not to sin. That's a bad place to be when you're not able not to sin. But Christ brings us into a new state of affairs. And Augustine defined it as this: the regenerate man or woman, that person who's put their faith in Jesus is able to sin and able not to sin. And you might right now think, even as you hear those words hit your ears, think, I don't feel that way all the time. And it's a lie from hell that tells us that we must sin because Christ has freed us from the domain of sin and death. But one day we know that we are not yet what we shall be. One day, we are promised an even greater reality. And Augustine uh, speaks of this restored reality that's going to come to us when Jesus returns. And that's this. That though Adam had a place in the garden before sin, where he was able to sin and able not to sin, he could not have imagined the reality that is coming for you and me, where man is able not to sin, and man is unable to sin. Can you imagine that day? with all of the pain and the fighting that that we have inwardly as we're trying to fight sin, that a day is coming when we will be unable to sin? And yet that's one of the gospel promises that we are given that's going to arrive in the new heavens and the new earth, that no longer will we even be able to do such a thing. Do you see it? Jesus doesn't just restore what Adam has lost. He doesn't just help us break even. That would be a win. Christian brothers and sisters, we've gained so much more in Christ than what we lost in Adam in the future. It only goes up from here when he returns. Okay, that's point one. We only have one other point. Second. Second. Where sin increased, grace super increased and reigned. Where sin increased, grace super increased and reigned. I kind of just want to keep reading that, but we see that in verses 20 to 21. Now, Paul's been talking about sin and death reigning from the time of Adam to the time of Christ. 
And a natural question arises about the purpose of the law, because there was a lot of time between Adam and Moses. And so there's a question I'm sure that was raised in the minds, particularly of Jews who received the law, as to like, what's the purpose of the law? Was the law supposed to make us sin less? Was the the law supposed to make us more righteous? And if so, did it fail to accomplish what God intended for it? How does the law fit into all this? Uh, He says first, in the first part of verse 20, he explains, now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's Paul's explanation. Now let me just be clear, elsewhere Paul speaks of the law as being good in Romans 7, 12. And in it we know that it it reveals the, the character of God. But from the perspective of a fallen sinner, in other words from another perspective here in this text, from those who are unable at this point not to sin in Adam, Paul says the law is actually a dangerous thing. See, the law doesn't play a chief role in God's plan in these verses the way that that Paul is describing it. He's describing it as almost having a subordinate kind of role. Now, this would have been important for Jews. Many Jews saw the purpose of the law as being to restrain sin and encourage righteous living amongst God's people. But Paul here is flipping that on its head. Rather than seeing the law as a kind of police officer that's there to, to make sure everybody's acting right, intending to curb sin and encourage righteousness, he envisions the law as more of an accomplice to sin and death. The law did not stop sin and death. It aided and abetted in bringing humanity, that's us, into bondage. In fact, commentator Frank Thielman, he's talking about this text, and he actually says that he sees here the law being personified by Paul through this description of how the law came in. He says that word for coming in actually has a kind of negative connotation to it. The kind of picture of a criminal that kind of slips in. As one Greek dictionary says, to join surreptitiously with evil intent. That is to increase the trespass. Now, God's purpose here in verse 20 is that the law was given to increase The trespass. Now that's not God's ultimate aim of the law. God didn't ultimately aim to increase trespasses. No, God's ultimate aim with the law is to magnify the power of his grace and impart life. But here, the arrival of the law is marked by a precipitous increase in sin. Now some have taken that this means that the law make sin more attractive. And so we sin more because the law is there that says, don't do this. And then we're like, oh, I didn't even think to do that until you told me not to. And now I really want to. Now, that, that might be in there. Romans 7, 7 to 11 seems to say that, that that's a reality, a real state of affairs. But I think this focuses more on the objective reality of sin and the way that it increases due to the law. Now, how does it increase? The due to the law, the, the sin. Well, this could happen in a couple of ways. Uh, some say that it increases the number of sins, and others say that it increases the seriousness of sin, the sins that are committed. In other words, if you break a clear law, then it's worse than breaking a law that's gone unstated. Well, those supporting the view that 
this increased. The seriousness of sin would just point that trespass is singular here. I think that might be reading too much into it. I take it that both the number of sins and the seriousness of sins increased due to the law. Uh, Y'all can talk about that over lunch. But the main point here is, is that sin and death reign with increasing power as the law arrives. Sin and death did not prove to be less with the arrival of the law. It proved to be more. See, the law does force us It makes us look with wide eyes to see clearly who we are as sinners in Adam. That was what God said about our rebellion. It's true. What God said about others is true. What God has said about our broken world that is so sin-laden and full of death, it's true. But there's good news. Here's the good news. He says, but where sin increased, are you ready for this? Grace abounded all the more. That's good news for sinners dead in the bottom of the ocean. See, the text literally says, where sin increased, grace super increased. The law revealed how hopelessly powerless we are under the reign of sin and death. The only thing worse than the present was the future wrath that awaits those who are in Adam. But here what Paul wants Christians to see is the super abounding power of the grace of God to deliver sinners. That's that's where the the emphasis and the exclamation mark is here. Did you catch the purpose in verse 21? The purpose of his super increasing grace? He says it's so that as sin reigned in death, grace may also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned and reigns in the sphere or domain of death for those in Adam. Just as verse 14 said, death reigns, but a greater power has invaded us. It has lavished us with the grace of God through the saving righteousness of God that comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ. It makes us right with God. It transforms us more into the image of the righteous Son, Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to the next until Jesus returns to finish what He has started. See, Paul, Paul here wants Christians to see that the power of sin and death, it is no match for the power of the cross of Christ. Now hear me clearly. You, you can't undo what Adam has done to you and for you and what you have done in him. But Jesus can. Sin is powerless before Christ. If sin reigns, grace floods. If sin is a, a wave, then the grace of God is tsunami. If sin is a lake, God's grace is an ocean. If sin feels like a strong breeze, God's grace is a category six hurricane. These are the images that he wants to give us of the the kind of comparing of the power of sin to the power that is ours by virtue of the power of the cross. It reminds me of a scene that I recently saw in Boba Fett. I kind of like 
Star Wars, you're okay with that? I hope y'all are okay with that. But I was watching it with my sons, and there's this scene where uh, he has taken the throne of Jabba the Hutt. His siblings, the Hutt twins, they initially are trying to take the throne back from him and claim it as their own, but they fail to do so, and they decide, hey, this is too much trouble, we're outy. But we want to leave you with some tribute. And so they left him with a gift just to bring about peace, which was this giant monster called a ranker. Now, the ranker comes with a keeper, and he is huge and ugly and terrifying. And as you're looking at him, you're thinking, this is not a gift. You know, there's some way in which you're trying to intimidate this guy. But when Boba Fett gets him into his cage, he looks at the keeper and he says, what's he for? And he says, oh, we trained him to fight. And he said, oh. And then he looks back at him dead in the eyes and says, I want to learn to ride this beast. And the keeper looks at him like he's crazy, like his job is to keep this animal. And he says, you want to what? And he says, I want to ride him. I've ridden beasts 10 times this size. That's the same image I get of Christ staring in the face of our sin. We are terrified, praying in the middle of the morning, seeking for God's mercy, asking for his help, asking him to hold us fast. And when we look to Christ, we see the firm gaze of someone who is strong and mighty and says, I went to the cross to defeat this beast. I defeated beasts 10 times his size. So how do we apply this verse before the powerful Christ? First, Let me encourage you, Christian. I don't know what sin it is that you're struggling with this morning. God's grace is so much more. Let me just repeat that. I don't don't really care what sin it is that you're struggling with this morning that you think you have no control over. You don't have control over it. But in Christ, you need to know that his grace is so much more. You have the all-sufficient Christ who is for you. And I know that feeling where, where sin can feel like it's so powerful as you're struggling against it. And maybe you feel powerless before that sin this morning. I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's addiction to some substance. Maybe it's uh, you're addicted to pornography. Uh, maybe you struggle to control your desires for eating. Uh, maybe you are addicted to comfort or comfort foods. Maybe you're just self-centered. And you feel like people owe you more help or recognition. Maybe you feel like you've just wasted your life investing in some who've walked away, and it, and it just feels like there's this, this air that sin is just stronger than he who is at work in you. Maybe you feel powerless. But be reminded that you possess property with Christ this morning. Here, here's the good news. When you find yourself crying out to God because it seems like the power of sin... It's just increasing all around you. You watch the news, you experience your family, your own heart. It just feels like the waters are rising. Paul wants to come in and he wants to sit next to you and hold your hand. And he wants to remind you, God's grace is super increasing right now. I don't know how much you feel that sin has increased in power, but just take that. It's like 10 times that. That's the power of Christ. Maybe you should say infinite more. I don't know. But what Jesus did at the cross means that we don't have to sin anymore. It takes prayer and and faithfulness and a local church and spirit-fueled effort, but don't underestimate the power of the cross. 
Second, Christian, for those of you who are facing death, or the death of a loved one, be reminded that the reign of grace is also the the reign of eternal life for those who believe. We need to, to think seriously as Christians about what it means that Jesus has won victory at the cross over not just sin, but death, the result of sin. As the famous hymn says, if we are in Christ, it is not death to die for the saints. For those who are in Christ, the power of the cross means that to be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord until the day when Jesus returns, and that's when the dead will be raised first and given indestructible bodies. It's natural and fitting for us to grieve the loss of saints, but as Andy reminded of us earlier this morning, we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. See, death has lost its sting, according to Paul, because of the super-increasing grace of God that swallows up death with eternal life for those who are in Christ. We need to, we need to bore that reality deep into our souls so that we know that we need not fear sin and death anymore. Third, this reality ought to inspire worship and evangelism. If we understand the super-increasing, abounding grace of God that comes to us in Christ, how can we not sing and worship God? I mean, if, if we're not singing, it is not because the music's bad. It's because our hearts have lost focus. God always gives us abundant reason to sing. Maybe off-tune, that's me, but loud. And when it comes to evangelism, how could we want to keep others from knowing about the, the super-increasing grace of God that is available to them in Christ? Something that could not just change tomorrow, but forever for them. I mean, if we look that deep in, in the recesses of our soul, don't we want to share that with others? Sometimes we're, and I'll say this about myself, just so self-absorbed, that we forget about the lavished grace that's been given us. We need to be reoriented towards the grace of God. And if you're a non-Christian here this morning, I think there's an obvious application. If you are not in Christ, you are in Adam. If you are not in Christ, you are in the reign of sin and death. This life that at times seems so chaotic, It is a life that is going to give way to God's wrath for those who are not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, Christ invites you into a kingdom that is eternal. He wants to make you no longer an enemy, but a friend and a child of God. And if you put your faith in Jesus today, you too can have property in Christ in the future. Don't leave here today without doing that, putting your faith in Jesus. Don't leave here today without talking to me about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you have brought us abounding and increasing grace in the moment where all we saw was increasing sin. Father, we pray that you would raise our gaze from our own selfishness towards the abundant grace and mercy that's been given us in Christ. Lord, stir our affections, our loves, our joys, our excitement for the future that is to come. Hold us fast by helping us to know and trust the power of God on display at the cross that unleashed your grace upon us. In the great name of your Son that we do pray.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. He who believes in Him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we have earlier eternal life and eternal punishment. We have eternal life and perishing. John 5.24 now. Move up to John 5.24. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my word, very important, you need to hear the word, and believes in him who sent me, has eternal life. You hear the word, you believe it, you have eternal life. And then here, listen to what he says, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So again, we have eternal life, we have judgment and death. We have perishing judgment and death. We have eternal life. Now some of you are saying, I'm doing just fine. I'm not in the realm of death. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I'm doing all kinds of things. I'm enjoying my life. I'm alive. Why do I need this life? Why do I need eternal life? I'm already alive. And I say, oh, really? Why do we need this life? Because God's Word declares to you that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That sin has caused a separation between you and God. And God must judge sin and will judge it eternally. And some of you say, well, how did this happen? Let me explain the biblical concept of death. Death is awful. It's an awful but simple concept. It's separation. Physical death, separation, body, spirit. We recognize that, right? When someone is dead, the spirit's gone. There's just a body there, right? Spiritual death, separation from God. Eternal death or the second death, separation from God in eternal punishment forever. Death is the lack of life. No God, no life. I've shared this before. When there's an auto accident and someone is laying there and they want to check to see if they are dead, what do they do? Do they look for evidences of death? No, they look for evidences of life. No life, they're dead. If you don't have the life of Christ through faith in Him, you are dead because of your sin. You are dead because of your trespasses and sins. You are separated from God and you will be if you do not repent of your sin, eternally separated in punishment. There is eternal life, there is death and judgment and punishment. In Genesis, God made it clear to Adam that if he disobeyed his word, he would surely die. 
And in Genesis 3, we know that Adam rebelled against God after Eve had been deceived, and he experienced the fruit of spiritual death, separation from God, and then ultimately physical death as its consequence. We know from Romans 5.12 that through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is disobedience to God's revealed word is the cause of death. Physical death is ultimately related to the fall of man, and that fall brought about spiritual and eternal death. Spiritual death being separation from God because of sin. Eternal death being separation eternally from God through eternal punishment for sin. The second death. Folks, you don't want to go through the second death. And Paul makes it clear to the Ephesians who were Gentiles that before they were saved, chapter 2, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were dead to God. There was no relationship. There was a separation. And he says that they were without hope and without God in the world. Without hope. Remember Paul said the hope of eternal life? Without Christ, you are without hope. And in chapter 4, the believing Gentiles were exhorted not to be like the rest of the unbelieving Gentiles who weren't saved. And Paul would say they were, Ephesians 4.18, excluded from the life of God. Some of you are excluded from the life of God because of your sin. You are spiritually dead to God. But the wonderful news is that Jesus Christ abolished death and brought immortality to life. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. Paul was in chains. Basically, he's given his last words to Timothy. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. So your works don't save you but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, and listen to this, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This gospel that declares that Jesus Christ died for our sins, we are sinful. And that he was buried, and that he was raised according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Some of you are excluded from the life of God because you have not believed the gospel. Jesus said that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed throughout all the earth. You need to repent. You need to go in your heart of hearts before a living God, before it is too late, and repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul speaking about being the foremost sinner ultimately. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that me as the foremost. And your sin isn't worse than Paul. Paul was out there killing Christians. But it's still bad enough to send you to hell. Jesus Christ says to me the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for what? For eternal life. The offer of eternal life is free. The offer of salvation is free. Jesus says in Revelation, verse 22, 17, And the Spirit and Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. It's a free gift. Jesus shared in his Bread of Life discourse 
to the Jews who were seeking the food and the stuff of God. And they didn't understand. Like so many people in churches who are seeking the stuff of God. Turn to John 6, 26. And we see a discourse on eternal life. Is this not like us these days? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're coming after me because you got a meal. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Then they said to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. It's Christ who gives life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. He says, Therefore he said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread, they said. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Have you come to Christ? Have you believed in him? But I say to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe, and some of you don't believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I shall certainly not cast out. For I have come down out of heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Eternal life is in Christ alone. It is through Christ alone. And it consists of a relationship with Christ alone. Folks, eternal life is not sitting on clouds forever playing a harp. Eternal life has to do with the concept of a true relationship with the living God. If you have sin in your life and you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you do not have a relationship with the living God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And eternal life is a true relationship with the living God. Jesus said in John 17, says, These things Jesus spoke after lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee, even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given me he may give eternal life. 
And he says, and this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? Here it is. That they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's a relationship with the living God. And folks, right now, if you've trusted in Christ, repenting of your sin, you have eternal life. You have a relationship with the living God. But yet we don't have eternal life fully yet. It's not consummated yet. We have no idea how wonderful this eternal life we will inherit will be. 1 John chapter 3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world doesn't know, as the world doesn't understand. And by the way, to some of you, this message is the fragrance of death, but is the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. He says, For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not appeared yet what we shall be. It hasn't appeared yet what the children of God will be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul was an apostle according to the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life was so ingrained in the Apostle Paul's thinking, we see it all throughout Scripture. His apostleship was in the context or the basis of the hope of eternal life. Have you passed out of death to life, from darkness to light? For the wages of sin is death, God declares to you. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Back to our passage. Titus 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. That's why he was an apostle. In the context of the hope of eternal life. Paul's apostleship was in the context of the hope of eternal life. The motivation behind his apostleship... Life with Christ, being like Christ, being with Christ, a relationship with Christ, knowing Christ, that encompassed everything Paul did. The hope of eternal life. Folks, we've tasted that if you've come to Christ. But someday we will be like him, we will be with him, and we will have it in its fullest. No more sin, no more separation. We will be with him, we will be like him. Now, to make sure we understand this hope in our passage, we see that eternal life was promised in the past by a God who cannot lie. Again, verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Here we see God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. And here we have a simple statement concerning the veracity of God. God does not lie. God cannot lie. This verb translated cannot lie speaks of the impossibility of lying or deceiving. And it is only used of God in the New Testament. Indeed, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 makes it clear that it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, what God says is true. If he says you are dead in your trespasses and sins, that is the truth. If he says there is salvation in no one else than Jesus Christ, that is the truth. It is impossible for him to lie. But in this context, what that means is the promise and the hope is sure. God promised it. It's sure. Absolutely sure. Paul has staken his eternal hope in the fact that God doesn't lie 
in the fact of what God has said. He believes what God said, and this hope is a true biblical hope, not a wavering, wandering hope based on our own desires. Paul served the Lord in the context of hoping for the eternal life in Christ that was promised by a God who does not lie and cannot lie. Now, what's interesting, if we just go right past this point, we might think, well, that's true, God doesn't lie. But this was especially significant to those on Crete. Look down at verse 12. Paul is speaking about one of the Cretan prophets, and he says, one of themselves, verse 12, Titus, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says, this testimony is true. Crete was known for being liars. They were known, Cretans were being known for liars. If you were a Cretan, you were a liar. But God, who does not lie, has promised this eternal life. God has promised it. Certainly, those in the Cretan culture who had come to Christ would still be stained by this lying culture and may be tempted not to believe what God has said. God who cannot lie. Now look, one more thing we see. This eternal life was promised by God long ages ago. The hope of eternal life was promised by God. It is God who promised it. The verb implies clearly that it is God who promised it, and it says long ages ago, and that could be translated before times of ages. And the hope of eternal life, and I like the New King James Version here, I think it says it well, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God promised eternal life before time began. It was promised before time began. Folks, sin in the garden didn't catch God off guard. The fact that man would fall and die did not catch God off guard. It was promised before time began. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Acts 2, in Peter's sermon, he says that Jesus was brought up based on God's predetermined plan, the Apostle Paul ministered in the hope of this promise that God promised before time began, eternal life. Paul shares this same truth to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and here he says, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. He's an apostle according to the promise of life. That's why he's doing this. He's sharing Christ who brings about life. He is focused on Christ in whom is his life. Everything he did was centered around this true life in Christ. Now you say, how does this apply to us? A couple things. First of all, God can't lie. Thus, all he says is true. And you can absolutely count on every promise. Secondly, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, God has promised you eternal life in Christ. You have entered into that life as he has given the Spirit as a pledge, but we have not yet seen the consummation of that life when we are with Christ forever. We haven't seen that yet. We haven't inherited it yet in the sense of Scripture says, but we have it. We should be looking forward and focusing on what God has promised in his word, not all caught up in the things of this world. So many Gospels these days have to do with this life, not eternal life. Not Christ. They have to do with what Christ will do for you. 
Remember the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have hoped in Christ, that's the hope of Christ, right? For this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. If your Jesus is for this life only, we are to be all pitied. We have a living hope in the person of Jesus Christ that assures the consummation of our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, where reserved for you in heaven. Let me tell you right now, if you're focusing on what's seen here on earth, you will not be able to endure. Ministry is not about what is seen here. It is in the context of the hope of eternal life. If you're focusing on this life, this church, or what happens here, not the eternal things, then you're going to be disappointed. Folks, we have a glorious future in Christ. The Apostle Paul would say that he didn't count the sufferings of this world to be worthy to the glory to be revealed. Romans chapter 8. Also, that our sufferings here are bringing about an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So what are you hoping in? Is your life based on the hope of eternal life? Looking forward to that? Probably didn't think about eternal life today. We probably didn't think about that at all. We didn't think about eternity. We didn't think about what Christ has promised us. We need to be doing that. The Apostle Paul's apostleship was on the basis in the hope of eternal life. Genuine ministry involves a genuine minister who knows his position or calling or purpose in Christ, who is motivated by his or her hope in Christ. That should motivate us to press forward, not looking back to the upward call, not the downward call, not the straightforward call, but the upward call. Now in the next section here in Scripture, I believe this hope is revealed ultimately, and we see the way in which the hope is revealed And I believe genuine ministry involves a genuine minister who gives God's message concerning Christ his way. And we see Paul did that obediently. Let's take a look at our passage again. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's why. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth that's according to Godliness, in the context of hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now verse 3, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Jesus. 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.